I'd like to thank our top sponsors, Marcella Schirak, Ödesbildenörrum, Anders Berge Christiansen, and Joanna Cordos for making this show possible. And welcome to the 17th episode of The Cave of Apelles. My guest for the evening is a philosopher with a punchline. Only the potential of improvement can give your life meaning. His proposition has become a controversial one in today's culture. Objective values and criteria exist independent of subjective preferences. Einar Duengerbön, welcome to the Cave of Pillars. Thank you for having me. So <clears throat> your book, The Meaning of Life, is the reason why you're sitting in that chair right now. And interestingly enough, you actually wanted on the front page of this book uh, the Sisyphus painting by Titian. And Sisyphus obviously was one of the sinners of, of uh, Greek mythology and he was punished quite severely uh, in the underworld. So before we get to you know, the topics for the evening, why don't you just uh, recap what the myth of Sisyphus is? So the myth of Sisyphus uh, comes in many uh, varieties. Uh, the way it's been used in philosophy uh, is, uh, so we just take it and use it for our own purpose. So, uh, so we, we don't really care about the original <laughs> sources for what exactly happened in this myth, but the way we've used it is uh, as this, um, there's this guy, Sisyphus, who uh, he loves life so much so when uh, he's about to die and the gods come to pick him up to send him to the uh, kingdom of death, uh, he, uh, he refuses and he tricks the gods into letting him stay on earth for a longer. Mm. Uh, he also uh, gets uh, picked up by the gods, but then he, he convinces them to go back down on earth to talk to his wife because he was, uh, was going to, uh, actually he was going to yell at her for not doing it right, his funeral I think it was or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he goes back down and uh, then he fools them again so they can't come pick him up. So he, he keeps wanting to stay alive, basically. Yeah. I think he ties one of the gods to the ground even at some point. So uh, after having fought for his life <laughs> for so long, uh, the gods get fed up and uh, they just pick him up with force. And he's punished to this uh, existence of rolling a rock up a hill just to see it roll back down. So every time he rolls it up, it rolls back down mm. and he has to go back down and pick it up and roll it back up mm. again and again. And not only that, but he has to do this for all eternity. Right. Uh, and so that's the myth, the way philosophers have described it. And the reason uh, we're interested in this myth is because it's a picture of uh, a meaningless existence right. or a meaningless labor. So this is the, where the concept Sisyphus work come from. Right. Uh, and you use that quite prominently in your book. Yeah, so this is a case for, this is a picture of, of an existence where you do something that's futile. It doesn't lead right. to anything. It's pointless. Yeah. Uh, and he has to do it forever. So it never leads to anything. Hmm. Uh, so the question uh, philosophers have asked is, well, if this is a case of meaningless existence or a meaningless life, two questions are important. One is how much does it look like our life? <laughs> like how much does our life actually reflect like this and we go to work every day we get some of us have kids we get a job 
work for a bunch of years, then we die and our kids repeat the cycle. Mm. Or just every day, you, you, know, you get up, you get your breakfast, you go to work, you go home, you watch some TV, and then you go to bed and you redo the same thing. So at what level and to what extent do our lives look like this? Because mm. if this is a meaningless existence, then our lives mm. is a meaningless right. less existence. Uh, but the other question is, what do we have to add to this existence to gain meaning? Mm. So if we want to consider a meaningful life, what is it that's missing in Sisyphus' existence? Mm. Because if it is meaningless, what can we add to make it meaningful? So that's sort of the way we've treated the myth, and that's how I use it in the book. Right. And um, I think that's in your book, isn't it? Um, that you, you've had experience of you know, talking about objective values in order to create meaning in, in life. Uh, you've been accused of holding authoritarian and, and dangerous ideas. And I guess it doesn't get much better when you prefer figurative paintings such as Ad Nerdrum <laughs> and, and uh, claiming that modernism or, or art, as I would say, uh, makes life meaningless, right? Um, however, it's, um, uh, it's easy to get confused as a painter and when we're talking about, about painting, uh, when evasive concepts like, you know, my expression or it does something to me are used as objective signifiers of quality. And, uh, you know, if you throw in identity politics and accusations of Eurocentrism, it doesn't, you know, it can get quite ugly. And I think this is why uh, we have these illustrations on the wall and on the shelf here to be able to, to, to see if we're able to tie what you're saying about objectivity into sculpture, into painting in, in, in this case. And just to be clear, the, the image to the left there is a Japanese sculpture from the 12th century of a Buddhist monk. And I can tell you, European sculpture was not at that level at that time. An amazing thing. And this is a Nigerian uh, figure from the 14th century. And I just love the fact that, you know, if you have the Gumbrian, Gumbric version of art history, then the, the thing you see are the masks, you know, that Picasso was concerned with. But you don't see that actually they were doing this as well. So they're sort of placed into what you're saying about objectivity. It's not just some subjective idea, right? And this is also why it's so uh, refreshing to hear that you, you speak of skill not only as a technical concept, but as, as a sort of sign of symbolism, of a, a symbol of humanism, I'm sorry. Um, so if we get to your book proper, uh, your idea when we we're going back and forth uh, about this conversation is that we should start with some definitions here in a true philosopher manner. Yeah. So, uh, shoot. So, yeah, so good philosophy always starts with clarifying the question we're interested in, right. uh, I think. Um, it's uh, important to know what we're trying to answer before <laughs> we try to answer it. Good idea. Yeah. I think that's a good start. So uh, the question of the meaning of life, for example, if we start with that, it's a big question. It's like the question. Mm. Uh, so what do we mean by it? And I think it's important to clarify exactly. So we can mean many things with that question. I think it's important to clarify exactly what I mean by it and what, right. what I think is the most important meaning of the question. Uh, and a couple of very important distinctions is um, when I ask about the meaning of life, I want to know what the point of going on with life is. So why should I get up another day just to repeat the cycle? Why should I continue living, basically? 
That's the question I'm interested in. So what's the point of going on? Mm. And that's very important to be clear on what that doesn't ask. Uh, so it doesn't ask about the cause of our existence. So why are we here? Right. So when you wonder about the meaning of life, you, it's tempting to ask the question, why are we here? Right? Yeah, yeah, that's... You look up at the sky and they say, where will it end if I go straight? And why the hell am I here? Yeah. Uh, but those are different questions. Those are questions about the cause, so the origin of life. Mm. And there can be many theories of that, but I'm not interested in that for this purpose, because I think whatever the cause is, whether it's an accident, whether it's God, intentional action, whether it's a big bang in physical theory, whatever it is that caused our existence, ultimately, we can still ask, okay, so we're here for that cause, but what's the point of continuing being here? Mm. That's still a legitimate question. And that's the question I'm interested in. So why should I go on? When I get up in the morning, why should I do it? Why should I get up? Uh, and I think that's the important question. So we're not asking about the cause. So we leave that behind. Uh, another question we're not asking is, what's the intention? So a lot of people, when we talk about the meaning of life, mm. they sort of presuppose that we're asking about what the point is in the sense of what's the intention behind our existence, i.e. supposing something like a divine intention. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in intention either. I think it's a different question because whether or not there is an intention behind our existence, we can still ask, why should we go on with this intention? So if God created us and he's the cause and he had an intention with our existence, I can still ask, what's the point for us to keep fulfilling or trying to fulfill this intention? Mm -hmm. Is it a good intention? Is it a bad intention? So if God was evil and he had a bad, he, his plan was just to watch ourselves torture each other, <laughs> I would ask, what's the point of this, right? The intention right. in the sense of the meaning of life in the sense of intention will be to torture each other then. Right. <laughs> but I would be asking, why should we keep doing this? What's the point? Mm. And so that's the question I'm interested in. So it's independent of the intention. So if you separate out cause and you separate out intention, then you start to see more of what we're looking for. We're looking for a question, a reason or a point of going on, keep living. That's the question we're interested in. Uh, and uh, so that clarifies a little bit what kind of questions. But uh, other, um, I'm just going to go on with a couple more concepts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, very important yeah, because you're differing you're separating the meaning of life also from similar concepts that you would think are, are yeah so, I, so i've done this like i've talked about this for 10 years now so <laughs> I, I know a lot of the confusions that come up in conversation with different people both academics and artists and what i call ordinary people uh, uh so i so there's a lot of concepts that get confused like cause and intention for example yeah but other concepts are uh, happiness Right. So now you're talking of, about states of mind. Yeah, so a lot of people think that the meaning of life, well, it's just to be happy. A lot of people say that. But I think that's false, and I'll illustrate that with the case. But before that, uh, think also of um, happiness and think of being moral. A lot of people think also, well, just behave nice. The point is just to do good things, right? Mm. And be moral, act well be to, towards each other. Uh, but I think these are different concepts. So think of, and I think in this case, painters and artists are good illustrations of why these concepts are different. Because uh, think, so I read this biography of Van Gogh, mm. the painter, and it's pretty clear when you read that biography that he was not very moral, he was not happy, but he was intensely obsessed with painting. And uh, what's the point for him to get up in the morning? Well, it's not to be happy. That was not what was driving him. And it wasn't even a point, I think, for him to search for it. 
necessarily. Uh, it was not to be moral either, but it was uh, to, to improve his paintings, to work on his paintings. So art was sort of like the point for him to get up. He wanted to make another painting or a better painting. Or, and I think this illustrates by anything, anyone who is passionate about something. You, you know, author, artists, painters, authors, scientists, anyone who really work on a project, is what this illustrates is that you can be really unhappy and you can be immoral, mm. but the reason or the point for you to keep doing what you're doing could be that it's very meaningful. Mm. It's a different concept. Uh, it sh these cases show that you can have meaning without happiness or morality, for example which illustrates that these are different concepts. They, they might coincide and come together sometimes, uh, but they don't have to, that's mm. the point. So these are separate concepts. Like if I look at my life and I do philosophy, I find it very meaningful, but morally I probably ought to spend more time with my family, for example, often. Uh, uh, it certainly doesn't make me happy, never been happy. It's not what I'm pursuing. I think happiness is, is overrated, to be honest. Mm like my cat when I when I stroke strike my cat and it purrs louder every time I touch it I feel like that cat must be really happy but lying there for a long time makes me think it's pointless mm. <laughs> it's meaningless the right. cat's life is sort of meaningless um, so I think this these kind of cases illustrate that these are different concepts so what we're looking for is a point to go on and that doesn't have to be happiness or morality or many other concepts it's I think it's a distinctive concept that has its own kind of identity. Uh, and you can see this with um, a bunch of uh, authors, for example, who, are, who, who, who keep writing books uh, and they're immoral and they're unhappy, but they keep doing it. Why? Well, because it's meaningful mm. to do it. That sort of justifies why they're doing it. They can do it and be immoral, and it is immoral what they're doing often. But anyway, still, it's meaningful. It's yeah. just a conflict between these values, and I think Meaning can explain and justify to some extent why they're doing what they're doing. Right. So these are different concepts. So I think we must focus on meaning as a point of going on with something. And that's the question we're looking for when we ask, what's the point meaning of life? It's the point of going on. It doesn't have to be morality or it doesn't have to be happiness, I think. But we, we want something, a point of going on. And what I go on to say is that it, you know, being moral, for example, is meaningful but there are also meaningful things that aren't moral. Uh, or being happy is a meaningful activity, but there are also things that are meaningful that doesn't make you happy. Right. So it's a broader category, meaning. Uh, and when you look at your own life and all the important decisions you've made, like why you went to school, why you got the job you did, why you moved where you did, why you got married, why you had kids, why you pursued the project you do, these big decisions, I bet it's never ever justified by morality. Very rarely do someone say, I got married for moral reasons. Mm. That sounds terrible, right? Mm. Or I got married because um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I think it makes me happy. That might, that's a little bit better, but I think still it's sort of like weird. <laughs> or I pursue my job because of moral reasons. Sometimes that might be true, but I think what also drives you is that it's meaningful. Right. And certainly in many cases you can say, I do this because it's so meaningful, even though I might morally have done something else, or I might have done something else to be happy. Right. So I think this illustrates that meaning is a broader, different category than happiness and morality, for example. Yeah. And a major term that you use is the, the idea of improvement. Yeah. So, well, and you're saying that it doesn't necessarily have to 
it's not the end result you're talking about, but the, no. the, the fact that you're trying to improve. Yeah, so I mean, so uh, that's sort of the answer to the question. So we, yeah. if we clarify the question to see what it means, uh, I, I sort of uh, give the answer that the, the meaning, the point of going on uh, with life is the potential for improvement. Hmm. So the fact that we can make things better, and by better, I mean as broadly as possible. I don't mean morally better, right? I would collapse back to <laughs> morality. So the potential for improvement, that's what gives you a point to keep going with life. I think that's like a, a point that's uh, uh, common to everything that we say is meaningful. It's a potential to improve. So imagine the, uh, the opposite, the reverse. So if, if you do something and there's no potential for improvement, that's sort of like pointless. Right, so yeah. if you go back to Sisyphus and you consider his situation, a reason that it feels pointless is that there's no room for improvement. He just keeps rolling the rock and it's not leading to anything. It's not making any improvements. It's not doing anything. It's futile and that's pointless. So if you add a potential for improvement in Sisyphus' condition, that would give him a point to keep going. Mm. So I, th I think that's sort of the, the answer uh, right. to the question actually. What's right. the meaning of life? The potential for improvement. Right. That's the reason and point to go on. And I, I wanted them to to um, uh, bring up something that I talked with uh, Joachim Eriksson about, uh, because you know when you're a figurative painter, if we try to take what you're saying and make it uh, concrete f for, for example, a figurative painter, um, a lot of them experience that you know selling is difficult. The galleries are all almost all modern and uh, uh, he talked about how he had these images the paintings still in the studio after the show they hadn't sell it was the best paintings they'd ever made and then he went into gaming industry instead now of course that's he's still using using his skills that's much better than the, your typical uh, change where where people go turn uh, totally modernist or, or contemporary and give up their talent but how can a painter still go on if you you are improving your work but they don't sell like how do you reconcile those two yeah it's it's hard because i think there are genuine conflicts of value so this is often called value pluralism mm -hmm. i think there often are cases where you have some justification for doing something but you also have justification for stop doing it it's like you can do great art but uh it's it maybe it's immoral uh, and then you have moral reasons speaking against it, but you also have aesthetic reasons speaking for it. So, for example, uh, if you want to continue painting in your style and it doesn't sell, then you get economic problems. Right. And economic problems means problems with just ordinary survival. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you have prudential reasons to not go on with that painting stuff. But right. you also have your aesthetic and your, uh, uh, I think, reasons of meaning to go on with what you think authentically is what you should be doing right yeah, because uh, i think that so there's a conflict yeah and, and I, I think that even though if you like if you have to have a, like a job on the side or whatever just to be aware of this idea that as long as there is a potential for improvement then it's meaningful yeah just to know that even though you don't get to paint that much or whatever yeah that can help you mentally keep stay mentally alive yeah absolutely and i think there's i mean we do when you uh, read biographies of great people who, who pursued their passion or the project they pursued 
they pursue the project with passion throughout their lives, and they have been poor, and you know the contemporary society didn't recognize them, and and later we recognize their genius. Mm. In these cases, why do we think it's so cool to read about these cases? Well, because he pursued, or he or she pursued, like the project that they authentically thought was actually what they were good at, or what right. they thought was valuable, or what they could improve, or they, they sort of pursued it at the cost of, you know, popularity or, or mm. uh, you know, ordinary survival. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I think there's some integrity to it and authenticity, like being authentic, being true to yourself kind of uh, idea. I think that's why we value those things. But in practical life, in ordinary life, there's, also, there's always these conflicts of value. Yeah. And most people, of course, can't live well off doing what they right. enjoy. But is there, is this, I mean, I guess that's a part of the distinction between the different terms you're using. Um, if I, as a figurative painter, have this idea of success, or at least that I should be able to live off of my work, do I have the wrong expectations? Should I adjust my brain, what I expect to get out of it? I mean, you have Nietzsche saying that neither, uh, that even, not even virtue is, a, is, is a, 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 like a pay in itself. You should just be detached from any kind of f fearing uh, uh, punishment or getting uh, uh, reward, right? Yeah. I, I don't know about expectations. I think, it's a, I think it's just a genuine conflict of values. So right. you have some reasons to do it and you have some to not do it. And I think it's important to recognize that these, there are actually meaningful reasons for pursuing it, mm. right? So when you do something and you think this is what really is much better than doing this, but everyone wants me to do this. Yeah. I, it's, it's, I, th I think as you said, it's very healthy for your psychology to realize that yeah. this is actually, there are actual justification for doing this. Right. It's and not that, just an illusion. And that doesn't uh, like magically solve the problem, but at least you know what yeah. your values yeah. are, right? Yeah, and, and you, right. You, know, you should pursue this. You can improve it. You're good at it. This is what you want to do. Yeah. And, and you think it, it reflects on deep values and you don't think this expect, what's expected of you do that. Yeah. Uh, you have to weigh these up against each other. And of course, sometimes it might be prudentially reasonable to go for the normal existence, but yeah, yeah. Uh, there are actual justifications for pursuing a meaningful project. I think we should recognize that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a shame when people don't recognize the, the actual objective justification for, for meaning, uh, uh, that lies in meaning mm -hmm. for pursuing something. I, I think it hinders like cultural development, to be honest. Uh, because uh, Speaking of that, I, I, there are some, some things that you write in your book, and I wanted to sort of play a bit of a devil's advocate that when it comes to some something that you're saying there that that might be a problem or not might be not be understood correctly because you're talking about how being uh, a part of something bigger gives meaning yeah and uh well maybe you should say a little bit about that first before i sort of try to get to uh, yeah so there's actually another distinction we might want to pull in before we go on uh so there's this between um Subjective and objective meaning, uh, I think, is important before you do the project. Quite uh, important, yeah. Being part of the bigger project. So, yeah, uh, when we talk about meaning and saying, uh, talk about the meaning of life, the point of going on, uh, uh, a lot of people confuse the, the subjective and the objective distinctions. So let me say what that means. Uh, so uh, on the one hand, people say, well, what's meaningful to you doesn't have to be meaningful to me. So we can have 
disagreements about what we find meaningful, what we experience as meaningful. So for example, I experience it's meaningful to do philosophy. Uh, I experience it as very meaningful to be at a coffee shop and just sit there for hours watching people. I find that very meaningful. Other people don't find that meaningful. They don't experience that as meaningful. They experience it as a waste of time. Uh, these are subjective experiences of meaning that differs from person to person. Uh, and that's not what I'm interested in, right? The question. Because that you can take with your friends and family and a shrink. <laughs> like what you find, experience, what you experience is meaningful, I can't really help you right. uh, from here. Okay. We need to talk about that right. later. Right. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think what, what, what the question is more uh, interesting, sense of the question is, what is actually the meaning of going on? Not just what do we experience as meaningful. Uh, so I think we can uh, be mistaken about what's meaningful. So as a teenager, I found something meaningful, and I think today that I was wrong right. about that. Uh, and I think we can correct each other. So I think what some people do is actually more or less pointless <laughs> a lot of the times. Uh, and I think that they can, they're wrong. So I think they can be corrected on what they experience as meaningful. I can't tell them that they're not experiencing it as meaningful because they are experiencing it. Yeah. But what they're experiencing is actually not meaningful. And this goes for all kinds of value judgments. This goes for ethics, for example. You can do something and think you're doing the right thing, but actually realize later or be told by others that you're doing something wrong. So you can be corrected. And this, is a, uh, this makes it more objective. So it doesn't make it just dependent on my experience, but it makes it actually being correctable. And I think this goes for meaning as well as morality, as well as art judgments. I think there are objectivity involved. And this lies at the foundation of this question that I'm interested in, this meaning of life, uh, theory of meaning of life as, as objective potential for improvement. This has to be some objectivity to it. Because if, I, if I'm being told that just experience something as meaningful, if I, if I worry, or, or when I worry that life is pointless uh, <laughs> all the time, when I worry about that uh, and someone says, well, just find something you like, doesn't really help, right? Yeah. Uh, because I might be wrong. I want to know that what I like doing or what I am doing is actually meaningful. I don't want to just feel it's meaningful. That's like taking a pill and living on an illusion. I, uh, that's not satisfiable to me. That's not satisfying to me as a, a you know, philosophical question. It might help me for my personal well-being. I might feel better or make a better life for me, but it's not answering the question of what the point of going on is. So I'm very interested in this objectivity in meaning. And then we get to the being part of a bigger project. So I think uh, meaning is a lot like uh, true love. So if you think of love, uh, uh, true love, not just not the kind of passionate desire for someone that you have in the beginning, but like true love like you have for your family or for your children. Uh, what that involves is that it's a relation I have towards another person. And I have love for my son, for example, and that involves that I sometimes go out of my way to make sure my son is better off. So I, I, I do stuff and I feel stuff that's directed towards him having, a, having it better or, or being better off. Mm. So if I did it for the reason that, if I helped him for, because it made me feel better, that wouldn't be acting out of love. That would be acting out of selfish desire. But if I do something for him so he can feel better, that would be acting out of love. So this is a directed towards something else kind of relation. And I think meaning is like that. So when you, uh, if you take painting as an example, so when Van Gogh was pursuing painting as a project, 
the last 10 years of his life was just painting like insanely intense. Uh, uh, and uh, what I think what uh, the meaningful aspect here is that he, you have to feel part of this project that's bigger than yourself. So if, if he was painting just to feel better, that would be sort of odd. But if he was painting, or pointless if you ask me, almost pointless. But if, if he was painting to pursue the art of painting and he was trying to make painting better and he's directed to that, just like love is directed to another person, meaning would be directed to a project that you want to fulfill or you want to improve. Uh, that's sort of like a true dimensional meaning, I think. That's sort of like there's actual potential for improvement and you're pursuing it and it's not about you but it's about the thing you're actually pursuing. So it could be a lot of things. It doesn't have to be painting, but it has to be something external to you. It has to be something bigger. And when you're part of that and you're pursuing that and you're trying to improve it, then you sort of look back and say, that was meaningful. But the paradox is that you can't think it when you're pursuing it. So if you go into the studio to paint the painting in order to feel meaningful, it's not going to work. <laughs> so you need to just focus on your painting and make sure you, you paint a great painting. And when you've done that, you can look back and say, that was meaningful. But is so there... it's, it's sort of like it has to be directed to something. That's sort of a picture. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm thinking uh, what I thought when, when you wrote that, when I read that, is that uh, you know, it's very important, especially for someone working in a classical manner, whatever discipline, to really be conscious about his or her ethics. And uh, I'm more, uh, my vantage point is, to, is Ayn Rand's idea of uh, definition of, of egoism is that doing something which is beneficial to yourself long term. Yeah. So helping your son is an egoistic because that's something that, that has a very high value for you, right? And, but, but if you should take it down to painting proper, um, a problem might be if someone reads your book and then thinks uh, the point is to be altruist, to sacrifice the thing that you really like to do. So that if you have that altruist attitude, you are quite easily a victim of just doing whatever anyone else does. Because you ha you, the whole metaphysics is that I cannot put myself first. I have to serve something yeah. greater. Do you see that as a danger or... or Yes, I mean, so it depends. So I agree with the altruism danger, but I, I don't agree with the stuff you said about egoism. So right. we can talk a little bit about that because I think if you're be thinking of altruism in the sense of I want to uh, do things that make other people feel good, right? Or I want to do things that make us all feel good. Then by altruistic reasons, you might adapt to, uh, you know, your local community, which you don't really want to do, right? Right. Uh, so you pursue like modernistic art because everyone else is doing it and everyone's happy. Yeah, that, that's the uh, that's sort of like the altruistic yeah. danger. Yeah. But I think uh, with the, I agree with that. Um, but I, uh, so in that sense, you should maybe for reasons of meaning, at least, if not for altruistic or moral or happiness, for reasons of meaning, you might go, you, you know, it might be that you should pursue what you want to pursue. And in that sense, it's more selfish, right? So you go for fig classic figurative painting instead of modernistic, you know, more abstract painting, for example. Uh, so there might be reasons for pursuing your own selfish stuff instead. But I think it's not, it does not, there are different notions of selfishness here. So uh, by selfish, I meant that you pursue something uh, just to satisfy your own desires. Right, if that's right. the main motivation, yeah. then you'll, I think the narcissist 
will never achieve meaning. Right. I think that, uh, um, I mean, Ayn Rand talks about long-term rationalism. Yeah, so and that's not what you're talking about yeah, right now. So I think the immediate satisfaction of your own desires yeah. is sort of like the narcissist picture of selfish, mm. selfish action. Yeah. And that's not going to give you meaning, I think. But uh, it might be selfish it, yeah. to pursue painting, for example, or the style you like. It might be selfish in the sense that you're doing something that you want to do uh, at, you know, at the cost of what everyone else wants to do. Right. So in that sense, it might be selfish rather than altruistic. But I think in order to achieve meaning to it, uh, you can't be thinking about your own immediate desires. You need to be thinking right. about well, I see, I see the, the discipline or the art yeah. or the, you have the, to relate the, to the, the uh, tradition of, you want to pursue. Speaking of objective qualities, it's not because I feel something here, but there are certain objective standards that I want to go by because yeah. they fit with my values. They yeah. have a very high value for yeah. me. Yeah. Because of what I In that sense, it's not selfish because you're actually seeing values in the tradition that the others aren't or don't like, and you're pursuing it. Uh, it doesn't have to be selfish because you're actually pursuing something other than yourself. You're pursuing values or objective values or a tradition in which it doesn't have to make you feel good necessarily. You can feel but, miserable your entire life and still have had a meaningful life. But that's where I think you're, you're dead, uh, spot on. Not dead. <laughs> dead. You're spot on. <laughs> you're dead on. Spot on when it comes to uh, the, you know, that the meaning of life is you have that when you are able to improve something yeah. and and uh, okay so I think we just kind of say that we disagree with or work with different ideas of, of egoism yeah. but but what I see then if you stick to the, the sort of the altruist side of it which is the main thing I was I was interested in as a possible problem here um, I mean I've, I've talked to painters there's hundreds of thousands of stories about that uh, one painter was here a really good painter talked about how when he was in the university and you get that pressure, yeah. modernist or art pressure, um, he painted a portrait and he got really freaked out because he felt that this was too sentimental. You know, he, he, you know that's, the, that's the way one thinks at present. And so he painted white stripes over it. And that's, uh, that's a problem if you Again, if you're you're used to thinking I shall not judge, but I should be part of something greater, yeah. then that's sort of the, the flip side of it, right? Or yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's it's again, I think it's a conflict of of what you call altruism uh, 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 or or adjusting or adapting to your environment uh, versus pursuing what you think is better. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's a constant battle. I I don't think it just goes for art. I think it goes no, in no, like no, acad <laughs> academia. It goes in. Everyday life, basically. Yeah, yeah. So I have yeah. this uh, Viking uh, tunica that I really like to wear. Yeah. But I'm sort of like, you know, I'm not wearing it at the store, you know, because I feel weird. And, but I really like to wear it at home. Uh, and that's just a case where, like, I sort of, like, have conflict of interest. I sort of wish I could use it all the time. And, but then I adjust a little bit to, uh, you know, expectations from the environment around me. When I pick my kids up at school, I don't wear it, right? So it's yeah, sort of like I'm just adjusting. And I yeah. think that goes for ordinary stuff like that, as well as for, you know, internal to art disciplines, as well as internal to academia, mm. uh, everywhere. This is this conflict. Uh, but I think we should recognize the value of, of the point of doing something that might be cutting across all these expectations and, right. and reasons from others. And, and there might be objectively good reasons for doing something that goes, you know, yeah. against all those contemporary trends or yeah, because a, 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 expectations. A problem could be, I mean, speaking of Sisyphus, uh, uh, 
if you are, not in the sense that you are uh, talking about it, obviously, but if you are then altruistically concerned with, you know, denigrating yourself, I have to live for something bigger because I'm not nothing, whatever. Um, this idea can lead to to passiv passivity, right? I mean, I, I the general thing you can can often hear figurative painters say when it comes to the situation, which is which is not exactly you know uh, on the table for for figurative painting. Uh, they will say, "Oh, just paint. Forget the critics. Just paint." Yeah. And I'm thinking, if if you're Sisyphus in that context, and you're rolling, you're carrying that rock up on the on the hill, and it rolls down again. And you, you just see the rock rolling and you get completely frustrated. Yeah. But you don't look around and say, well, here's, a, here's an art critic pushing the rock down again. Maybe you should deal with him instead of the rock. <laughs> yeah, just, you understand that, uh, uh, what I'm saying there? Um, no. That if you, if you are too much concerned with the idea of, uh, of um, living for something bigger than yourself, then you don't really take uh, oh, control over what what is the yeah, real yeah. problem right? yeah so you need to get the scope right so if you think too big like mm. i want to just to every improve everything yeah, yeah. then you might the expectation from others might take over or something um, right. yeah you need to focus on so you need to have to focus on like this particular project where you find potential for improvement mm. uh, and it could be very narrow like uh, like I've brewed my own beer recently the la over the last year. I find that very meaningful to improve my beer brewing. So every time I brew another, uh, uh, what is it, the word patch, I, I think it's uh, uh, when it gets better, I'm like, this is very meaningful. I, I yeah. love doing this. Uh, yeah. uh, and it could be bigger, like, you know, writing books or doing my uh, university job, or it could be like becoming the greatest painter of all time. It could be at all different levels, but I think you need to focus. So if you think I want to improve you know, the world, that might be too broad. <laughs> because then you might have to adjust to everyone around you. You might have to follow expectations from others to improve their lives. And, and then it becomes very complicated. So I think it's, uh, if, if I understood you right, I think you need like to focus on, on a particular thing. So imagine like Sisyphus. If he decided all of a sudden that he was going to poke fun at the gods and he was going to just totally enjoy rolling that rock because they want him to have this terrible... Mm destiny because of what he did so if he for a moment you know tried to improve his rock rolling he was just like i'm gonna sing along when i roll that rock i'm gonna you know uh, make it more round so it's easy to roll i'm gonna improve everything around my situation and just get more fit i'm gonna enjoy it and he just pursues it every time with a new you know uh, drive to do better uh, and there are he can do it to some extent he can roll it better or find ways to, for it to be easier to carry up there or and if you tried that for a while i would say that's sort of a point to go on right it's it's tiny but it's it's it makes the situation a little bit better uh, i think it makes it a little bit more meaningful uh uh and 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 in that sense he found potential for improvement that would make his life more meaningful but if you saw like an art critic rolling a rock on the other hill uh uh and they together, like, uh, you know, decided to do something. Yeah, maybe that would make it more, I don't know. Yeah, well, I, I guess my point was rather that, that if you are not concerned with that I can have a better situation, then you can easily miss that the actual, the, 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 the reason why you're in a miserable situation can, if you just change your angle a bit, be easily solved 
and you attack the problem and not not the s symptom yeah, of it, right? So, so. Right. I mean, it's like so to take this story literal, literally. Yeah. The rock rolls down again. What if it doesn't roll down by itself? What if someone is pushing it down all the time? Maybe you want to address that person who does that, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Take the problem at the root. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. But, yeah. uh, but in, this, uh, in this context, you But what if that person was wrong? So like the person who, who was pushing it down or you want to take the problem by the root, right? Uh, what if the root was the wrong reason? The better reason was to not approach the problem that way. Well, at least consider it, I would say. Yeah, maybe. Oh. <laughs> but then we get to the idea of virtue. And how, and or techne is the te term that you've been talking about, the Greek term techne. So what, can you define that for us? So techne is uh, it's a very messy concept, actually. Mm. But it, 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 the way, the, where I, where I uh, pick it up is from Aristotle. Yeah. Uh, and we want to get to, to the objectivity in painting, in, uh, in yeah, sculpture. So, so if you talk about objectivity in, in art, for example, uh, uh, and, and techne is this concept where, it's an old Greek concept from uh, where the Aristotle, Plato and Aristotle discusses a lot. And, and Aristotle defines it as a, a kind, it's, it's an intellectual virtue actually. And it's a kind of skill mm. that you have. Uh, it's a skill to uh, produce something. Uh, but uh, not just produce it, but produce it with what he calls a true concept. So you want to produce something with a true concept. When you're able to produce something with a true concept, you have techno. And the way I think to understand it is uh, when you have the skill to produce something uh, in a good way, so you have a goal of producing something and you know how to produce it well, then you have techno. Mm. Uh, but it, so it could be, you know, uh, building a house, for example, when you want to build a house and you know how to do it well, then you have techne in house building. Mm. Uh, but there are two degrees to it. So one is um, the, the, the uh, person who, who makes the house uh, and he knows how to do it, but he doesn't really know the principles or the reasons why he does everything he does along the way. He's just like the carpenter that does what he's learned, but he doesn't really know why he's doing what he's doing. Mm -hmm. uh, he has techno to some degree, more like a crafts work uh, kind of techno. But there's also a higher degree, according to Aristotle, where you have, you know how to build a house well, for example, but you also know why you put everything where you put it when you do it. So you know the principles behind why you're doing it. So you have the knowledge, and I think that's what it means by having the, the true concept or the knowledge behind what you're doing. So an equivalent to that would be, for example, if a figurative painter knows how to get the color and proportions correctly, but that's like the extent of, of the knowledge, uh, um, that is something completely different than from understanding what the larger point of painting is, for example, than storytelling. Yeah, the larger point, yeah. but also why exactly why you put this paint here and this here, why you make this light and this dark, why you make this warm and this cold. You know the principles behind what you're doing mm. when you do it, then you have a higher form of techna, according mm. to Aristotle. So I can learn the basic stuff of painting. You can teach me how to do it, basically, but you would still know a lot more about why we do each things we do, right. when we do it. So you would have a higher degree of techna, uh, a higher degree of that intellectual virtue mm. than I would have, mm. according to Aristotle. So, so this is when we're talking about uh, or getting into objective criteria. Because if you look at uh, Ad Nerdum's portrait here, if you look at the Japanese uh, figure from the 12th century, obviously from completely different times, from diff 
different different uh, cultures, but they base themselves on certain objective criteria. I mean, the most uh, explicit ones being proportions, for example. Now, this is a sculpture, but I mean, you have painting from from uh, like I talked with, with Cheng Wu about uh, uh, Chinese uh, painting from the ninth, tenth uh, century rather, and there are surprising complete similarities between ha between that and for example Lars Hartevig of the uh, 1800s in Norway when it comes to how they create yeah. form so and, and how they create uh, spatial depth right so that those are objective criteria for what how you create form throughout ages and throughout cultures yeah so th those would be cases of uh, Teshna in the sense of like the craftsmanship that's needed yeah, yeah. The, the work you have to do with your hands, the instrumental objectivity, I would call it. Like, you know right. how to do things to achieve certain goals. And when you know how to do it, there can be, there are objective criteria of how to, for example, create depth in the picture. You need right. like warm and cold against each other. You need light and dark against mm. each other in the right combinations. And then you can create depth. Yeah, and so if you don't do that, you just don't get depth. Yeah, uh, and so, so the whole idea of, that's why I mentioned um, Eurocentrism, I guess you're familiar with the term. Um, uh, and, and this is also part of what we're getting to in a couple of minutes or so when it comes to defining what modernism is and did uh, to the foundational core principles of what I call just Greek culture, right? Uh, and including the Renaissance, Baroque, whatever. Um, that that uh, uh, to take away all of those uh, things that we can say with clear certainty that are objective values. But then, th so you call this instrumental objectivity? Yeah, it's sort of like uh, a, a half of the picture of Teshna. So if you have full right. Teshna, you, you have the instrumental objectivity, like you know how to do things. So if you right. want to build a house or a veranda, you, there are certain way, things you should do and yeah. certain things you shouldn't do in order for that house to like stand <laughs> in the end. Yeah. And th that's subjective. So if you yeah. say, I feel I don't have to do certain things, the house will fall down. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> those are objective instrumental yeah. objectivity in the technique, in the crafts work or in the, yeah. you know, in the, in, in the, how you do it. Yeah. But there's also, uh, you know, the true concept or the knowledge behind what you're doing kind of picture involved in technique as well. Uh, which uh, is you need to know why you're doing it, when you're doing it, and how to do it. But you also need to know why you should do this at all, mm. right? Why you should pursue mm. this project. What mm. the point is? What's mm. the meaning of this project? Mm. Is it meaningful? Yeah, and I think that's also, also part of it. Uh, you need to have both, and not just the hand, uh, the techna, but you also need to know the principles behind it, including the meaning of it all. Mm. And the great artists, of course, they have both. They know why they're doing what they're doing, how they know how to do it, how to paint what they want to paint, but they also know why they should be painting in a certain way rather than another, why they, what kind of values they want to exhibit and what to do to be able to achieve that. So mm -hmm. if you want to paint and show um, two people caring for each other, you need to do certain things to be able to paint the people caring for each other, which are instrumentally objective stuff you need to do. But also you need to know, you know, what, caring is and how to express it you need to have this like deeper knowledge of, of the values you want to show mm. with your um, instrumental yeah. objectivity like yeah so, so so that's one part of it you can say there are objective criteria on an instrumental level as you say but then there are what i would say are objective uh, uh, signifiers of what is an interesting or, or an appealing picture 
And I think that the essence of it is to deal with fundamental human situations, archetypes, right? So you can you cannot. It's not uh, objective in the, in the way that technique is because it's not material in that sense. But and you can say, well, some people don't like archetypical images. But I would still say that this is a basic necessity for a human being to see your life externalized. I mean, I tend to use the example of the sick girl by, by Edward Munch. Yeah. You don't have to have lost a sister to be un, to be able to relate to that somehow. Yeah. And there's something about the comfort or just just seeing that someone has been in your situation somehow that that is I don't know reassuring somehow yeah. it doesn't solve the problem magically but but it's uh, but it's necessary and I think that is what you could say are objective criteria of what a good work is aside from the purely technical issue yeah so that's one way of looking at it so the archetypes uh, um, might be what I, I would maybe I, I would just call it uh, you know universal eternal uh, ideas of, of the human situation right like right. you want to show in a good painting for example you want to show some aspects of the human situation uh, and there are you know certain technical things you should do to be able to show it but there's also you know those kinds of human situations values that you want to exhibit in that work also yeah. needs to be considered yeah uh, so you need to uh, not know you need to not only know how to paint for example a person touching another person but you also need to know how to paint it such that it exhibits the value you want to exhibit right. in the touching <laughs> right uh, not just like yeah, yeah. that they're touching yeah, yeah. that would be boring yeah. uh, so there's two sides to it there's instrumental objectivity uh, but there's also the reasons and ideas behind it and mm -hmm. i think if you have a fully loaded concept of techna it involves both right and I think yeah. that's super important yeah. for, think, for meaning, just to connect it yeah. to what the initial point. I mean, I think yeah, yeah. that's super important for meaning because that gives a point to keep doing this. Right. And I think if we dropped the values I want to exhibit and just painted two people touching, I wouldn't see the point of it. Yeah, and I think uh, that, that... And if I just wanted to exhibit the value but didn't know how to do it, I would also be like, <laughs> something's missing here. <laughs> What's the point of going on? Uh, so I think you need both. Yeah. Uh, I think that's very important yeah. for meaning. And, and also, uh, one thing I would think about when you're talking about archetypes or eternal images, you're, to you're talking about things that don't really change or, or um, well, <laughs> improve. <laughs> um, you can see in, in Aldner's work, you can see it in Henrik Ibsen, you can see in uh, you know people that really have a purpose with what they're doing is that they keep doing the same things over and over and over and over again. There are concepts yeah. that that reoccur eternally <laughs> in Ibsen, yeah. and then and you see it in Nerdum too. And then finally they they get it. You know they've been yeah. trying from this angle, from this angle, from this angle, and then finally it 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 works right. And uh, with that sort of as an as an introduction, I, I want to come to some some uh, uh, another point that you're making in the book which is connected to to the meaning so you you're saying that the potential of improvement is the thing not just to make more things of the same quality yeah. like, not quantity but but the quality should yeah. be the thing so if from my vantage point and i might just be misunderstanding what you're writing so, so i'm eager to hear your, your response um, if i as a painter am able to I want to quote it from this book at some point. I, I had this book on the on the uh, conversation with with Nick Thurman. If I was able to make a self-portrait like this, or a portrait like like Nordum's there, 
of the same quality, then for me that would be a huge improvement, right? Because what you're saying could be misunderstood as as long as what you do is not better than all the rest, yeah, then yeah. it's pointless. Yeah. But yeah, so it's important actually. Uh, some people in so I've given talks on this, and some people in I gave a talk in Sweden, and the guy in the audience said something similar. He said, "Well, he was an old man, and he said, well, I go to the golf court every Sunday to play golf, and it's very meaningful to me. But it's not that I get better every Sunday. I get better from playing golf. It's mm -hmm. just that if I didn't go, I would." You know, deteriorate. Yeah, right. I would get worse. <laughs> so he just kept status quo. Yeah, and yeah. that was the important part. Uh, yeah. So he didn't really improve in one sense, but he right. just didn't get worse. Yeah. Another way of looking at it is, as you said, you know, you want to approach the quality of this. Uh, so you work every day to approach the quality of it. Even if you, at some point, if I was trying to approach the quality of this, it would take a long time. And then I would work on it and get up every morning trying to paint that as well as that. Even if I realized that I will never do it, it's still the potential for improvement in my painting that you know is a point for me to go on. I think that's the quote by uh, uh, by Chesterton. Uh, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Yeah, I mean you approach something really great, and that's yeah. that's improvement in one sense. And maybe you know if you think of the best portrait ever made today, maybe there's like a couple of them or one, the the best ones. Uh, it's not that we should we all should stop trying because they're so good. That yeah. way it will never be improvement because there might be someday that someone gets something that we didn't see in the first in the top one, right? Right. right. So there's always room for improvement, both for you in your art, but also but for from objective principles. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, so if 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 there w if there was a perfect picture, that actually would make my theory a bit harder because if life could become perfect, then there would be no more room for improvement, and that would sort of be like. Well, what now? But What's the point it, now? So there needs to be more room for improvement constantly yeah. in order for you know, there to be an ultimate point of going on, I think. It's actually a bit tricky. It's a weak spot of yeah, my yeah. theory. Well, <laughs> I, mean, I think you can also go into the trap of positing the idea of some ideal picture and then the ability to actually get there and then it's game over. Yeah. I mean, I was think, I'm, I'm thinking, um, uh, what if you are able to become, for example, a mediocre Hellenistic sculptor. A mediocre, just being a neutral term for something, not the worst, not the best, right? Something in the middle. Yeah. That would be an awesome feat to do that. Right? Yeah. So, so it's, uh, and, and I'm thinking also, if you find something like, like this um, Yoruba figure here from Nigeria, or the, the Japanese figure there, uh, nobody knows who, who made it. And, you find that one figure, then you are a, you you could, if the culture is really set on it, you could create a new Renaissance based yeah. on just that one figure. And let's say you are the one who made that one sort of fairly good version of what everybody else did, and that is what was found, and then you can the whole thing can start growing again. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think it's it there, you know there's improvement and there's sort of a relative improvement. I mean, right. so, so in, in, right. in our time, in our present culture, yeah. if you can become like a mediocre Renaissance painter, you would probably be the best painter <laughs> in our culture. <laughs> so in that sense, you're improving our culture. Right. You're improving the right. art of our culture. I see. Uh, but you're not improving absolutely beyond the best painting ever right. uh, or something like that. And it's interesting with the Greek sculptures. I mean, 
it's it, I suspect some people suspect that those were just like you know ordinary sculptures, uh, and the best ones pro might not even be preserved. Right, and still they're <laughs> the best we have. Yeah. So I think it's a, a st it could still be an improvement. Improvement yeah. is very dynamic here. Right, it's not right, right. it's objective improvement yeah. that we're looking for, but objective improvement doesn't mean you know some kind of absolute. Uh, top point that no one can go beyond yeah that's not that does not objectivity doesn't have to be like that objectivity mm. just means that you can actually do better than this or better than that that we can be corrected yeah that's the, so that's the, the objectivity the improvement so, can be relative to and subjective in that sense but you're basing yourself on objective absolutely objective you, principles yeah you can have relative objectivity so for example yeah, yeah. defining what uh, uh, what a portrait is and defining a traditional of painting a portrait you can have objective criteria for how whether it's good or bad, right, right. given that definition. Yeah, yeah. But if you ask, what's the definition? What's the be what's a good portrait without telling me what a portrait is? It's sort of like I yeah. can't even start. Yeah. <laughs> I need that kind yeah. of definition of what it is that I'm supposed to be approaching, hmm. or which dimensions are valuable in this. Right. Uh, and that you need all the time. Uh, so you can become. You know, there's tons of improvement for. Mediocre painters, and there's tons of improvement for the best painters. Right, and they change, you know, they can change a bit of a style and then improve that style. It's like if you look at sports. So the world champion of running, uh, you know, five miles. It's not that he's exercising or training is pointless now because he's the world champion. Oh, he's not. He's got no one to beat. Uh, so he has to just improve his own record. That's the point of him continuing. Mm. Or if he can't do that, he realizes he's getting older and he can't beat his own record anymore. It starts to become pointless, actually, to keep running. Right, That's the else. sad part. You have to become a coach or you have to find yeah. another dimension to improve. Right, and you see this in, uh, in rock music. You see this all the time. Old bands who had their like heydays and then they become older and they can't do it anymore, but they, they keep trying. They tackle the transition. They keep trying and it becomes pathetic. Uh, uh, they should do something else. Uh, and I think this is just in line with the objective improvement. But the, there's another uh, thing I was thinking about. What, what, do you, what then do you think about the whole idea of, of um, given the, the uh, criteria, which I've, I'm saying is objective criteria, that a good sculptor, a good painting, has an archetypical element, something about even just in the gaze or in the action somehow. Uh, doesn't that is that sort of somehow contradictory to improvement because you're not improving the human condition you're just getting in touch with the human condition which is sort of yeah. the same <laughs> throughout the ages yeah no i think it's uh, it's a good question but i think i think um what you you need to uh do is not improve the human condition or the the value you want to exhibit in the painting but uh you want to improve the way you do it Mm. Right, so you want to you want to make it better right. or exhibit the value even better. So to if you look, if you look at this, for example, um, a portrait. So if you simplify and you say a portrait has two dimensions of value that needs to be balanced. One is uh, it needs to look like someone uh, to some extent. There's a dimensional degree, right? So you can have hyper realism and you can have total abstraction. Degree of look alike, mm. and then there's the degree of of a portrait, if you think of a portrait as also needing to um, show a person, you want to exhibit a personality or a person in a portrait. If you simplify and think, if this would be a definition of some kind of portrait, then you need to balance the two, right? So you need to say, it needs to look alike to a certain extent, but if it looks too much, it becomes flat. Mm -hmm. 
you can't get to exhibit the emotion you want to exhibit, for example. But so you need to tone down the the hyperrealism, uh, uh, perfectionate uh, lookalike. But you also want to express the personality. So you want to balance the two dimensions. If you uh, uh, want to express the emotion or the personality on the one hand, and you want to make it look like someone on the other. So if it doesn't look like him at all, you have less of a portrait. If it looks too much, it becomes flat and you lose the personality. Mm. So you need to find that balance. And, and that would be a case of relative objective objectivity. You could right. define, we simplified, of course, the definition here, yeah. but it's a definition that you have, a goal that you try to uh, achieve, and there are good and bad ways of doing it. And you need to try to find the perfect balance. And this is why you can keep doing it forever, the same portrait of the same person forever. And just try it, and everyone's like, why is he painting the same person all over again and again? Well, he's perfecting that balance, maybe. Right. And that would be a point, because all of a sudden you say, as you said earlier, I got it. That was the perfect portrait, given that simplified definition. Uh, so I think that, that would be a case of, uh, uh, it wouldn't contradict anything. It would just be a definition uh, that you can work with and say, this is what we want to achieve. Right. Uh, there would be objective criteria for achieving it. Okay, are you ready for a couple of questions from the audience? Sure, if they're not too difficult. Well, we'll see. Um, there's, um, uh, we actually have, I think we have like four or five questions. Uh, there's one guy here who's written us via email. And he's asking about Techne. Is it so that one can possess knowledge without having learned this from some talent slash genius? Yes, <laughs> uh, I think so. Uh, so yeah, so I mean, it's a bit ambiguous what's meant. I'm not right. sure. Yeah, uh, I'm not quite sure either. Uh, I have to admit. But that. I mean, so you can gain knowledge in many ways, mm. just in general, mm. without talking to geniuses. I can look at this glass and, and oh, realize, like, realize there's water in it. So mm. I didn't look at it, talk to any geniuses. But mm. if it's if it's mm. uh, knowledge in the sense of techna, if it, mm. if that's what it means, mm. uh, it's sort of like a knowing how to do something. Mm. Uh, to achieve a certain goal in a good way, uh, then you can uh, gain that, I think, without uh, learning from or talking to or interacting with geniuses. Uh, I actually think a genius doesn't have anything to do with it. I think it's yeah. got a lot to do with practice and hard work right. and working and knowing what you want to achieve and then explore ways of achieving it. And you can achieve a certain level of techness. So like I can build a if I were to build a house, I've never done it before, wouldn't know how to do it mm. today. And I would start out building a house, I would gain some techno pretty quickly about what works and doesn't work. Right. But eventually I would become better. But I think in order to become really good, it would be a very good thing to look at other people who built houses before you, right, right, right. who have done but it well, I think and then compare yourself and learn from them. Right. And that would certainly give you a boost in right. techno, I right. think. Uh, but you can certainly gain a lot of techna, a level of techna, without interacting with geniuses. But and also the the, the the concept of genius as such has been perverted. I mean, it was basically a synonym synonym for talent. You had a genius, but you had to cultivate it because if not, yeah. just something some passive ability. Right? Yeah. So this idea of being born a genius. So like Mozart yeah. is often considered a yeah. genius because he wrote symphonies when he was like six or nine. His first symphony. Uh, so he was like a child prodigy, and it was sort of like just, you know, natural born gift of, mu of composing music that he had. But we also, 
shouldn't we should we shouldn't forget that I'm pretty sure that Mozart exercised a lot. He practiced a lot. <laughs> he probably did. I'm pretty sure he spent uh, quite a few hours in front of that piano <laughs> in order to compose anything. I don't think he just sat down and did the first composition. So I mean, hard work tends to be ignored when it comes to this concept of a genius. Yeah. I think geniuses are often people with a certain talent who actually works insanely hard. Right. Okay, so here's another one um, <coughs> that was also received via email. <clears throat> this is someone who has um, read um, excerpts from your book, she, uh, she wrote, writes here. And uh, I'm trying to translate here. Um, if the synthesis uh, of the meaning of life is objectivity, and the meaning of life is in life is subjective, then there must be some form of objectivity in the subjective. And she, she uses the, the example, which is, I guess, quite common of a drug addict who wants more drugs. So that would be objectively what he wants for himself. But how do you say that this is not objectively good and etc.? Um, I'm not sure I understood. So, so there's this one idea of, of you know, subjective meaning, which is just what I experience is as meaningful yeah and then there's objective meaning which is what's actually meaningful right independently of my experience right now there's a way of twisting a little bit with these words where we say well if i experience painting as meaningful then isn't it objectively meaningful or isn't it objective that i experience painting as meaningful right and the answer is yes if i experience something as meaningful it's an objective fact mm. that I experience it as meaningful. Mm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you know, what I experience as meaningful is actually meaningful. Right. Uh, right. So those are, different okay, things. I, I, those are different things. I think that's uh, a good answer because you, you have to stick to a very general uh, answer in such a question. Yeah, so like I experience uh, sitting at a coffee shop as uh, meaningful. Uh, that's my experience of meaning uh, subjectively in my life. And so it's an objective fact that mm. I experience that as meaningful, right? Because it's a fact. Right. Uh, but that doesn't mean that sitting at coffee shops is actually meaningful. Right. So here's a <coughs> live question from Erde Spildenudrum: uh, How does our time, the 21st century, compare to other times when it comes to individual happiness and meaningfulness? Yeah, it's a, <laughs> you have two it's, seconds it's to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough one. Uh, and it's also more or less an empirical question right. uh, in one sense. I mean, yeah. how does it actually compare? Right. Uh, uh, but it might, if, we, if, the, if the question is something like, how, what are we thinking of meaning? What do we experience as meaningful and so on? Uh, it's an empirical question. But if, it's, if the question is, what is actually the point of going on? Mm across different times, then, then it's not an empirical question. Then it's more or less a conceptual uh, question of what the meaning is across and time. that would be the same at all times. And that would or, be the same at all times. And that would right. be my answer. Okay. To, potential to improve things. So I think for the Greek people, who the, the, Greek, Greek sculptures, yeah. the point of them going on was to improve that sculpture right. in that very discipline. The point of other uh, things to do back then was to you know, improve stuff. Mm. improve democracy or improve you know the situation of the slaves i don't know what the point were <laughs> uh, and uh, i think okay. the same yeah. point holds today yeah. but there's a uh, difference in what to what extent that might be what he's insinuating like the, there's a difference to what extent we are realizing that potential mm -hmm. to what extent we're achieving that 
meaning and right. to what extent we're actually living in accordance with that meaning. And I think there are some aspects of like the Renaissance culture that achieved and lived in accordance with to a greater degree meaning than we do today. Hmm. Right. right. So, so, yeah, I, yeah. so I think they achieved and they lived in accordance with meaning in some areas to a greater extent than we do today. So like when I see people in popular culture, I'm like, I'm just sad. Uh, <laughs> and when I see like, I, I really like this new artist in the Renaissance now, Andrea del Sarto. Sarto, yeah. Uh, and when I see that, I'm like, wow. Yeah. Right? So I think he achieved a lot uh, and he, gained, uh, he he sort of like lived in, in alignment with meaning to a greater extent than, you know, some Netflix show. Right. So the, the expression and the, the, the realization differs across cultures. And that's a good question, which culture achieved the most? Right, right. And I don't think that's our culture. <laughs> Here's a but it, it's actually important that the point, the answer is the same across all time for all people, objectively speaking, right. independently of our preferences. Yeah. Feel this you're being very authoritarian now. I'm very authoritarian <laughs> on this. And I'm open to being wrong, but then you have to give me a reason for why this is the wrong answer. You can't just say that you feel differently. <laughs> then I'm unmoved. <laughs> you have to give me a reason. Here's a question. <clears throat> I think this is from uh, from uh, Instagram. Um, Aristotle said that taking pride in one's achievements is the crown of all virtues. Is it not so that this pride and the potential for improvement result in happiness and thus happiness is the meaning of life? Maybe uh, to some extent. So I, I, I certainly don't think happiness is the meaning of life. Uh, and I certainly don't think it is the meaning of life even if uh, uh, pursuing meaning results in happiness. Because I think we can imagine scenarios where the two concepts come apart. Mm -hmm. And just imagining possible scenarios where they do come apart, where they don't coincide, shows that they're different. So it might be that, uh, you know, when you pursue something meaningful, you achieve a certain level of happiness. And certainly you can achieve happy moments. Mm. Uh, you, you paint a painting and you go, wow, that was great. I'm really happy for a little while. Mm. And then you're like, I have to improve on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so it may, gives you happy moments. Yeah. But happiness in a more uh, deep sense is sort of like a, a, a satisfaction or contentment with your situation or your life for a longer period of time. You're sort of like happy about your situation and it has to last a little bit. And that certainly doesn't need to lead to meaning. It's like my cat can be very happy. Mm. But I think my cat's existence isn't as meaningful uh, yeah. as, you know, uh, Michelangelo's. Well, I mean, I would rather have the ability to tackle uh, uh, problems than to feel happy. So this was I mean, Socrates' point when he yeah. said, I would rather be an unhappy human than a happy pig. Right. Don't say anymore. That's a good punchline. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, let's see here. Um, it starts with agreed. So I guess this is, that's positive. Um, I think this is also from Instagram. Failure and striving is a huge part of learning. What is Mr. Burns' take on failure and its role on, in improvement? So that's actually a very good question. I like that question. Because um, in order to prove, improve things in general, whatever it is, you need to, uh, uh, at least most people, fail a lot. Uh, or they don't succeed as right away. 
And that's part of, so ironically, if you imagine a scenario, if you say use painting as an example, since we're here, um, if you're, uh, so in one sense, it's more of a point to go on painting if you have a great potential for improvement, right? It's a bit right, ironic. Right, right, right. More if, mistakes to be made. If you're the best painter in the world, there is a point to go on painting, namely improving yourself, the painting, but it's harder for you to realize it. So the point is the same for both, right? Improve your painting, right? That's the same point yeah. for both, but one of them has a bigger potential for improvement. So in a sense, it's... Well, I think then you at least you're talking about what you call instrumental uh, uh, values. Or what the, what term do you use? I mean, I, one thing I remember Adler said to me very early was uh, I was striving with a self-portrait, and he said, "Don't worry, it gets much more difficult as you go along." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the same. I think it's the same with a lot of disciplines. Like when I was a student of philosophy, when I studied philosophy, yeah. there was so much to learn, mm. right? Uh, just to get an overview of yeah. what's going on it took forever. Mm. And then when you sort of get that overview and you're sort of established, it's the details that you work so hard on. Well, I guess, uh, I guess at a certain point when you're really learning a lot, that's, that's a ride. But then you get, yeah. it sort of flattens out. And so then the learning for many curve, people that can be a, yeah. a downer, right? So the learning curve can be very yeah. steep when you're beginning. Yeah. And that, that's when you're like, you know, certainly have a lot of potential for improvement. But then when you get really good, it mm. sort of like slows down a little bit. Uh, uh, and, but I think... It's important that the failure and the potential for improvement and the curve can be very steep at points. But I think it's important that the meaning for both is the same, mm. namely the potential for improvement. So I think that's exactly, so I worked a lot with the formula, the meaning of life is to improve things. Mm. There's a reason I say things because it's supposed mm. to be anything. Mm. And there's a reason I say improve the potential for improving things. Mm. For example, rather than the things you improve, yeah, because so this is yeah, it sounds sloppy, <laughs> but it's very precise uh, because it's actually the potential for improvement that's the same for both. So yeah. when you reach a level where there's no more potential for improvement, it becomes pointless to go on. Mm. That's the important part, and I think you never get there. Even like Old Nordrum, he still has room for improvement in painting. Otherwise, there would be no point for him to go on. Right. Okay. Um, before we get into the whole idea of modernism, <clears throat> I have to remember to tell our audience that if you go to <coughs> patreon.com slash you can see the different benefits you get from supporting our show, among them having your name mentioned when you ask questions. So, we're going to rip modernism apart, or rather, <laughs> I'm leaving, leaving it up to you. You say, I actually, you wrote, oh, that's the first thing I wrote, uh, read uh, uh, from you, this article uh, where you talk about portraiture and I guess you talk about modernism there too. I guess there, that's where you really uh, are more precisely directed at uh, modernism and what it does to objective criteria. You want to lay that case out for Yeah, us? so this is when things are going to go downhill. <laughs> this is when we're going to start getting hate emails. <laughs> Uh, I think, uh, so uh, I think, first of all, I, I think it's very important, uh, very difficult to define modernism. I think it's a very fishy, foggy, hairy term. Uh, all these isms, I mean, general, very uh, skeptical of isms. But I think if we think of modernism, yeah. <laughs> if we think of it as a tendency or a trend, 
And I, I, you can mention names. I'm, I'm going to try not to mention names. You can mention names if you want. But mm -hmm. I want to describe a tendency, I think, uh, that happened or really kicked in at the end of the 1800s, beginning of 1900s mm. uh, in art uh, and in culture more generally, actually. Uh, and the tendency was to, for example, in painting, to start questioning the tradition of painting. Right. Uh, and start questioning the foundational rules and start questioning the way of doing it and, uh, and, and try to provoke and do it in another way or try to um, just question the, what I would call the axioms of painting, the foundational rules. Sure. Uh, and for, so Picasso would be a paradigm example. I just mentioned his <clears throat> name. I said I shouldn't. <laughs> Picasso would be a paradigm example, uh, but even before and after him, but Picasso would be a paradigm example in painting. Uh, Schoenberg would be a paradigm example in music. Uh, I think uh, James Joyce with Ulysses would be a paradigm example in literature mm. where they started to question the, you know, so James Joyce wrote, you know, stream of consciousness in a very different way uh, from the traditional novel and Picasso painting, you know, perspectives have several different viewer points in the same painting in a different way than the yeah. tradition. He started to question these foundational rules of how to paint. And that's interesting. I, I sort of like people who rebel and object and do new things and provoke and I have nothing against that, but my problem is that when the tendency to do that takes over and becomes the mainstream mm -hmm. trend, that's when weird things start to happen, I think. Uh, because um, in order to be corrected in a tradition, you need to have reference points over time. You need to look at other painters. You need to look at the ones you think are the best and to compare yourself so you can be corrected up against something. Right. But when all those traditional... Potential for improvement. Potential for improvement. You know, I can improve towards Rembrandt style. I can improve right. towards, you know, Odd Nerdrum style. And, and if and I can interject one thing there, I mean, this is something that I, I really became clear for me like the last year. And I've been doing painting courses for quite a few, few years. But then it's like you, suddenly you get this one sentence that, that you've been thinking about all the time, but you haven't really formulated it as well, uh, as, as clearly. And the thing is that when I teach them how to paint, I'm not teaching them my style or Nerdrum style or Rembrandt style, but I'm teaching them the, t the techniques that objectively work. Yeah. Right. And those are the things that are put, uh, are doubted. Uh, yeah. And that's uh, how you as a teacher can tell your students that, you know, you should improve this. Yeah. You, you right. should do this right. in order to get that result. Right. And you can correct them. Now, if your students were what I would call modernists, if they were like, you know, there to question the tradition, it would be very hard to evaluate their work. Yeah. Because you wouldn't have any criteria to compare to. So the foundations would be ripped apart and then uh, you would be like, okay, so how do I judge this p artwork? Mm. Well, now it becomes more a matter of, do I like it or not? Right. Is it satisfying to me? Do I like the colors? You can say general things. Uh, is it, but is it stimulating my thoughts or is it provocative? You can talk about it in many ways, but it's very hard to say that this painting is objectively better than this. So for example, take a purely abstract painting like Rothko, for example, and take a Picasso and take a Rembrandt. Which is the best? If I have no criteria or tradition to build on, I don't know how to answer that question. I, would, I could say which one I like the most. But that's sort of irrelevant to whether it's a good painting. Yeah, I think it's very important to separate whether the painting is good from whether I like it. 
Right. And when the trend becomes that we all evaluate it in terms of whether we like it or not, or whether yeah. you know it's interesting, or these very general terms that has nothing to do with that what we talked about well, earlier, the Tejna, it yeah. becomes really hard to evaluate. So the objectivity and the value judgments sort of fall apart. And I know now from beforehand that you were not so particularly keen on going too much into Immanuel Kant, but uh, <laughs> I can't help myself. I mean, this his whole idea is is that you are the person who m create beauty. It happens in you, right? And that subjectivity, I think, is the fundamental problem for, for talking about any kind well, of objectivity. And this is from this book on, on Munch. And I just want to, to sort of add to that to the definition of, of modernism. And it's just some very few qu short quotes here, where they're talking about um, uh, the, the the naturalist generation. So it starts before modernism proper. Uh, were actively against the academic uh, type of painting, and they were united in the belief in the artist individual as a subjective unity. And then elsewhere here, they were talking about the subjective uh, anchoring of perception in the artist individual. Right. So then you get to the situation where if I you know, like Monk said, people don't understand that the sky can be experienced as green, right? So this is my answer that when subjectivism comes in, and this plays right into the hand of what you're writing there, and that's what I loved about your book, that uh, you agree with me. <laughs> no, joke aside. When subjectivism comes in, then you have no ability to, to say this is good or bad. Yeah. And then everything just falls apart right yeah so i mean it's the same if you go back to uh subjective objective meaning so if you say i experience this meaningful to do this and i say well i don't right. like there's no way for me to correct you unless there's some objectivity to what's actually meaningful yeah so if it was all just preferences or and all just subjective experiences i could never actually even communicate with you yeah. about the quality of your work because you would experience something and there's nothing you can point to to be corrected because it's all about your experience. Yeah, and the extreme case of that is, um, I don't know if you read, it's a wonderful book, uh, The Darkening Age by Catherine Nixie, about how the, the Christians uh, and the, their destruction of the classical world, burning of books, destroying sculptures, etc. And coming in there, and we are talking about one of the most amazing things created in human history, and they just destroyed it without thinking. And I think that shows how important the conditioning of your whole metaphysics, your whole attitude, your sense of life, as Ayn Rand would say, is, and how that can f cloud your ability to see what are our objective qualities. But I, as I understood from your book, you're saying that, well, that doesn't mean, still doesn't mean that what they don't see is, is not objectively yeah, good, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's very important to separate the subjective experience uh, or how much I like something yeah. from whether it's good yeah. or how much I dislike <laughs> yeah so I can like so I have some there are a bunch of modern artists that I really like and enjoy watching uh, and there are others I don't like and don't enjoy watching but I think it's very important to separate that mm. from whether they're actually good yeah so there are many things I like to do which I recognize aren't the best thing to do right 
It's like speeding with my car. <laughs> I love speeding, but I recognize that it's not a good thing to do. And now I can't say because I love speeding, we should speed. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a mistake. Uh, um, uh, and I right. think the same goes for art. There are some artists that I really like, but I also recognize that they're not the greatest artists. The so work what, what aren't you, the greatest. What do you say about, there's one uh, uh, thing that, that Thomas Koltke writes about in his book, Kitchen Art, which I could also recommend for you. Uh, to read, and he talks about Le Damasoni <coughs> Dominion by Picasso, and he says that had it not had an effect art historically, it wouldn't be, have been a good painting. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm thinking, well, what about the objective qualities? Are they completely non-existent? And I think that's when you go in, come into the, the whole, well, modernist or art yeah. way of thinking, where it's not the objective quality of the work itself, but it is the reception yeah of. so one way of putting it is to tie it back to what we talked about earlier is to say that when you think of the concept of, of Teshna you think of the objective instrumental skills and objectivity and in instrumental uh, skills needed combined with the reasons why the values you want to express the goal of yeah. your activity a lot of uh, m the tendency in modern modernism is to not worried too much about the instrumental objectivity or the technical skills needed to achieve something and worry more about you know values you want to express it's because more a play with ideas so you sort of like remove half of the full-blown technical concept right. and it's because more an intellectual game and you know which other artists can you refer to by doing this or yeah. you know what do you want to pr how can i provoke independently of you know perfecting my skills it's yeah. It becomes a play with ideas. And when I go to an art show and I see a painting, which is just a bunch of play with ideas or, or commentary on the contemporary political situation or something like that, I'm more like, I would rather read a doctoral dissertation on contemporary politics than watch that painting. Right. Uh, but and that, that's what I, I want. It sort of loses its point, I think. Uh, yeah. And I think that's a, this, a crucial issue because you say, okay, they lose the, the instrumental, I mean, like the technical aspect, the craft, yeah. to say it simply. But I'm, as, far, as far as I can see, they're also they're losing the other half too. So if, if craft are, uh, represents objective criteria for quality, then, and we were talking about, at least that, that is my view, that, that the, the, the eternal archetypical images that it, it, rel it relates to archetypical situation, then that is the objectivity when it comes to the content, then they are taking that away as well. So we don't, yeah. you have neither left. Yeah. And I think a central point of, for um, when art really becomes full-scale art with what we call modernism, I don't see a discontinuation, I just see it as the same thing going on, but just unfolding. Uh, then one of the other basic premises uh, besides the subjectivism is is uh, you know doubting as you would say, mimesis, and then you are talking about the two aspects because there's a painter friend of mine, Luke Hillister, who, was, who, was, who wrote about that. How uh, uh, Aristotle is talking about mimesis not just of the outer form but of the human mind, yeah. right? And that's the content. Then you yeah. have the technical aspect and the content, right? Yeah, but I mean, I, I'm not sure. I wouldn't rule out that some modernistic artwork can express a universal, eternal human state, or or be able to do it. 
but I think it's it's it becomes just something very different from your, what you would ex well, like uh, express says, through painting or uh, like Herman Brock says, no art can do without a drop of kitsch. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also it depends on like how narrow the the the, the ideas are. So like if yeah. the if the you know some kind of um, artwork is mainly referring to the contemporary political situation or the climate crisis, and that's the main point of the artwork. That could be good and interesting in one way, right, but it's just not going to last for very long. Yeah, yeah. So it becomes less interesting in another way. Uh, uh, what you, the best you want to do is to achieve something that will last forever for everyone, everywhere. And am I quoting you correctly? when I say that you're saying that with modernism, the improvement potential withers. Yeah, so it becomes harder to evaluate what, how to improve, basically. Yeah. So a nice analogy is in mathematics, actually. So in mathematics, you have often what's called axiomatic systems. So that means you have some basic statements that you take for granted, mm -hmm. and then you prove theorems, things from those. So, for example, in number theory, you have some basic statements like zero is a number, and every natural zero is a natural number. Every natural number has a successor. For example, two statements, you accept them, and then you prove things. For example, zero is a number. Every number has a successor. Okay, so zero has a successor. Let's call it one. So then we have zero and one all of a sudden mm. being numbers. <clears throat> then you can go on infinity and get all the numbers. Very simple, very nice deduction. Now imagine some modernist in mathematics came in and said, well, I'm going to question those two statements. Okay, good, interesting. And what are we going to do now? We can't prove anything now. Mm. So it's an objective and fact. So the whole endeavor becomes meaningless. Yeah, because, it, well, it, it might, you know, he might establish a new tradition, like talk, and they do often in mathematics too. They talk about you know, imaginary numbers or real numbers and talk about other numbers. And they can do that and establish new traditions. Mm. But if the main trend is just to question the foundational statements all the time, then you can't show anything. Well, then it's, it's like discussing with someone and the person doesn't want to agree with you. Yeah, it's like it's fruitless yeah. it's, it's, and it's pointless to yeah. keep going. So yeah. if someone denied those two statements in number theory, I couldn't show them that one is a number. Right, right. Then. Because it wouldn't follow because they denied the foundation. Mm. But nonetheless, one is a number given those two statements. That's yeah. just objectively provable. And if you feel differently, you're just confused. Right. I just proved it to you right now. Right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, it's like that, that, then you're talking about what, what Aristotle, he refers to the, the sick eye, right? Who sees a different color, what's the exact example? The eye sees a different color than what is actually there. Well, that just means that the eye is sick, not that the color is yeah. like that for me yeah. and like that for you, right? Yeah, I mean, where it might just be a different tradition altogether. So, I mean, so in... in um, well, I mean, the, 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 the irony is that, that um, um, you know, modernism has, of course, a, an idea of objective truth. Like you have uh, uh, Malvich's The Black Square, which he said was the essence of Rembrandt. And then you're sort of really being objective about, okay, that Rembrandt is black, so why, why, why don't you just paint black, right? Or paint is paint is the modernist idea. Yeah. So they see that as a, as a sort of objectivity. But then again, you lose the fact that the, what you do, uh, if it doesn't relate to the human existence, it's not interesting for human beings. Yeah. And you create out of the fact of being a human being, not being a fly or yeah. living on Mars or whatever. I think another big problem with modernist tendency is that when you go away from the 
you know, uh, skills involved in Teshna, mm. when you go away from uh, uh, gaining a craft or, or gaining the ability to perform something really well, like paint really well, when you don't think about that, but you think more about playing with ideas, we're sort of losing something that makes humans a great thing. I mean, yeah. we're losing the ability to show that we can actually make some really impressing stuff. Right. Uh, uh, and when you move away from the skills, yeah. it's sort of like we lose yeah. that incredibly amazing feature that we saw in the High Renaissance, for example. Yeah. People, the craftsmanship was just, wow. Yeah. And that shows something about humanity and about us. Yeah. And when we all want to just provoke or all want to just do creative things or all just want to have fun or we just want to be entertained, it's sort of like it's a decay of what it is that we can actually do. So uh, I think uh, I think to, uh, uh, an analogy to modernism uh, or modernistic tendencies is, you know, being a teenager. So when you're a teenager, you, you want to uh, find yourself, you want to provoke and you want to test out all kinds of options. And, uh, and that's good. That's healthy. And, and you know, as, but imagine being 40, 50 years old and you're still doing that then sort of, uh, it's sort of like, it's not that healthy anymore. <laughs> no, that's, <laughs> you, that's you, just sad. You, know? you, you sort of want to yeah. find back to what's really important, what's, what's really, what are the more objective values that we should yeah. be corrected towards yeah. uh, and not just provoke for the sake of provoking mm. or being original for the sake of being original or trying to find yourself just for the sake of finding something unique. You sort of want to find back to what you think is really valuable. Important. Uh, and that's sort of... A trend is dangerous when when the, the teenage attitude becomes mainstream mm. instead of vice versa. I think the teenage attitude is healthy as a sidekick, as a as you know to keep us fresh and and you know self reflexive and so on. But it's not healthy when it becomes mainstream. Right. When it becomes the most important thing. Um, and I th I think what I see as one major problem, the consequence of this. I mean, we, we talked about initially, how do you keep yourself up mentally as a figurative painter? You achieve really high level of skill. And precisely achieving that is seen as your worst quality. And how do you reconcile that dissonance yeah. there? And uh, it's, it's, it's especially because the consequence of the subjectivism of the art way of thinking is that is nepotism. Right, there are no objective criteria to go by. So it's a matter of what we feel at present is the zeitgeist, is yeah. the the spirit of our times. And then you get to I always use the example of Ilyapin. He could become the greatest Russian painter, even though he was not of noble descent. In the military, you had to be noble to become a general. But he, because there were objective criteria, this looks like a cloak, not as color. These proportions are correct. All these things. Because of that, he, coming from, uh, well, not, at least not the highest levels of society, could become famous. And that, to me, is justice. That is yeah. a fair, a moral situation to, to, to live in. And you don't get that with the subjectivism yeah. of art. Yeah, and I think that goes back to what we talked about earlier, like um, to, to recognize and value skills and craftsmanship right. and to recognize and value when people are really good at something. Uh, and that takes. And then you need to change the, the, or give them an alternative of a way of thinking. I mean, if you have an ideology that says that is, it's bad to be good, 
then of course you you don't get that. Yeah, but I mean, I think a lot of modern artists would also think that they are improving and they are good at what they do and they become better. And I think there might there's even uh, truth to that many times that they are actually improving, given certain uh, predefined notions of what you want to achieve. Right. But I think the danger is when uh, when we don't value the longer traditions, when the reference points for being corrected isn't you know eternal, but they're more narrow to your local present or or to your own century even, then it becomes much uh, 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 less of a, of of, of a, um, you know it becomes less great, <laughs> less eternal. <laughs> No, but it becomes more uh, less room for objectivity, right? Yeah. It becomes less room for, for yeah, I mean, and I mean, comparing it, it, yourself to others, uh, yeah. and that takes away a lot of the point of going on. It becomes very local and very yeah. a cycle of of self reflection that doesn't reach out to to you know height and depth. Yeah. I mean, we, I think this is why humans can reach out to do. I think this is why uh, Ortega y Gasset, the Spanish, uh, I guess it was a sociologist, he wrote. Um, uh, in English, the dehumanization of art. It, is, is, it sounds uh, polemic, but it, it's not. He's quite positive about it. Or, or like, yeah. And he talks about how uh, uh, art, then, as he says, consciously moves away of, from what is recognizable for you as a human being. But then I'm thinking, okay, there's several things here. One is the whole idea of zeitgeist. We are doing this at present, which is a horrible uh, uh, admittal of complete lack of individuality, of, of uh, courage to stand on your own, right? And the other thing is that when an artist or a modernist ridicules an academic painter, oh, that's what they did at that time, well, he's laughing at himself because he's standing in the same idea that you have to be in your time. So in yeah. 100 years, he will be ridiculous, yeah. right? So it's like fashion. Yeah, yeah. but then, then you lose the, the eternally valid, the objective, I would say, valid criteria yeah. for what is appealing. Yeah. I mean, so I think it's very simple. You compare two scenarios. You compare a scenario where someone... So take a painter, two painters. One of them uh, exhibits not only works really hard, both of them work really hard, say, but one of them exhibits great skills in the sense of like knowing how to paint what he wants to paint and he shows great skills in actual just techniques of painting. Mm. Uh, and he exhibits universal human values that are eternal, that everyone can recognize independently of time and space. Even if they're shaped in a contemporary, you know, clothing, they might still be recognizable as universal and eternal. Mm -hmm. And on the other end, you have a painter who also worked really hard and who have skills and can even improve some of his skills. But it's mostly uh, a work that, you know, is trying to improve his contemporary art, you know, reference to contemporary artists or contemporary zeitgeist. Mm. And in 100 years, no one will recognize right. what the point was unless they read a book telling them what the point was. Yeah, yeah. Compare the two mm. and say, which one's better? Right. And not just which one do I like the most, but which one's actually better? Which one exhibits more of the greatness of mankind? Right. The one with the skill, amazing skills and eternal values, or the one with you know, creative original skills and local values? I think both have their value. I think a lot of people appreciate 
both in many in different ways but more objectively speaking like independently of what we prefer and like which one's just better and i think it's pretty obvious <laughs> you know i'm are... not going to answer it we're going to leave the question in the air but i think it's there it's an are, important question. There are quite a few other things we could talk about, but I love that punchline to a degree where I'm going to tell you it was a joy to have you on the show. and a joy uh, to be here. And thank you for watching. Remember, you can support our show at patreon.com slash I'll see you next month.